Our Father, once again, we come to the Scriptures. Uh, we ask that you would focus our attention tonight on the person of Christ and on this area of the blood atonement and his death, that we may perceive something of what was necessary in order to secure our so great salvation. We thank Thee that the Word of God is living and powerful and is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it can pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a critic or thought judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We thank You now for the blessings of grace in Christ through His name. Amen. What I'd like to do tonight is have a little bit of an intro again. If you'll turn to Hebrews 11.3, this is a basic promise of Scripture. And uh, if you have some the last week's notes or something, a scrap piece of paper, uh, like to do, uh, have you uh, work on some um, diagrams of this. Um, I really urge you, because in the light of the framework, you'll see why as we work through from week to week, why this verse is such a good promise. A lot of there's a lot of promises. Romans 8:28, all things work together for good to them that love God to them that are called according to His purpose. Um, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. Um, you need to be in the habit of at least knowing certain minimum set of these promises because um, life is uh, swift, quick, and often don't, doesn't give you much time to think through responses. And these are sort of um, spiritual tools that are in the scriptures that can uh, be used. The Holy Spirit can use these, but in order for Him to use them, we have to have them in our hearts, and we have to have them logged away somewhere. Um, but Hebrews 11.3 is a, is a promise that um, uh, digs very deeply into the world system and is very foundational. Uh, I would recommend that, if you are interested in mem memorizing it, to write out your own expanded translation of this verse. If you look at it in um, whatever translation you're following tonight, just remember it's got two parts to it. It says, By faith we understand that the ages of the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. And we said last week that the word, Word, is not Logos, like it would be in John. This is a word, Rhema, or Rhema, R-E-M-A. And this refers to uh, a word, but in the sense of it being spoken. For example, uh, rima in the plural in the Greek uh, is used in the New Testament for such things as saying, these are the sayings of the prophet so-and-so. That would be the rima. It's translated sayings, not writings. Sayings. So the emphasis is on the speech. And I think it's deliberately here, put here, by faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the speech of God, the spoken word of God. Because what do we read in Genesis 1? When God, he speaks things into existence. We can't do that. We have a thought in our minds, and we think about it, we plan it, and we build it. But we never speak something into existence, other than a sermon or something like that. Um, so, I encourage you to write it out however you want to, to memorize it, King James, modern translations, or your own thing. But the sense of the verse is that by faith, 
we understand that the worlds and the ages, the word worlds there means the ages of history, were prepared by the spoken word of God so that, and there's a purpose clause here, so this sentence has two clauses, so that, actually has more than that, but at least it has this purpose clause, so that what is seen, what we observe, did not come out of things which are visible or things which are apparent. So, in another sense, this verse is teaching us the insufficiency of natural causes. That's a fundamental point, because pagan thought always insists on the sufficiency of natural causes, the sufficiency of what man in his modeling can comprehend. That's sufficient to explain all things. And this verse says, no, it isn't. The things which we observe in our lifetime, the events that happen to us day by day, do not arise out of things that we can measure, feel, touch, taste, and so on. Or said another way, that as we go through time, viewed from the standpoint of the natural mind, uh, there's surprise effects. So what I want you to do on your paper there is if you take some circumstance, it may be a, a, a situation at work or a family problem or, or a financial thing that you're thinking about, a career change or something, but just kind of write to yourself a, a short, um, a, just a short description of that, a couple of words, just to remind you of what that circumstance is. And I want to show you little paper exercise here on applying this verse. So let's say uh, it's a situation uh, involving um, something at work, some, some work situation. And uh, put it in a box, that's the problem. That's the situation that you find yourself in. Now, to illustrate our normal tendency, put an arrow pointing to the box. And on the tail end of that arrow, write what you, if you were a natural man thinking apart from the scriptures, what would you say brought that thing, that situation about? My boss, the business climate, um, the financial state of the company. But some cause, causes, just think of some natural causes out there that people normally attribute this kind of a situation to. Okay? And just think for a moment and just scribble a few uh, letters and numbers or whatever just to, to kind of abbreviate to yourself what, thinking like a natural person, what would you say caused that situation? What, what brought it about? Okay. Now that's, that's the normal situation. That's how we normally analyze life. We have the situation, here's the cause. Now, put a bracket over both the box and the causes. And then above the bracket, put God said, or God says. Now, what we've done here is we've encapsulated both the problem and these causes underneath God saying, God speaking, God guiding history. 
So he is the Lord and he is the God. This is how this comes about. So that, this summarizes the theology of Hebrews 11.3. Now let's go further in chapter 11 and we'll get an example as a model of how someone applied this in an everyday situation. Turn down to uh, verse 23 of this chapter. We're just going to do a quick look at the application of this kind of thinking by one of the, or by one of the great families of Scripture. Verse 23 of Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now you remember the story. This was in the time of the Exodus. Uh, mother's dad, Moses' dad and mom, recognized something about this baby. Now it's very interesting. This is mentioned three times in Scripture. That whatever this this baby, when when Moses was a little baby born he had a peculiar look about him that was strikingly attractive. Now, babies are always attractive to their parents, but the point here is that it's mentioned three cases. If you want the other verses, Exodus 2.2, and Stephen mentions it again in Acts 7.20. So when the Holy Spirit points it out three times, it's worth mentioning. Something physically uh, appeared with this child. And it says, by faith, they, the parents, saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Well, let's diagram it the same way we just did the Hebrews 11.3. Here's the situation for Moses' parents. They have this baby. It's a male baby. And what was the rule in that situation? the official bureaucracy of the totalitarian government decreed genocide to eliminate and control the Jewish population. So, <clears throat> this was the law. Was the law said that this baby male had to be executed. So, one of the, the situation, not only just the baby, but now we've got plus a policy a genocidal policy, plus there's this, what we'll call a marker, some feature about that baby that just the Holy Spirit used to, to prick their conscience into the fact that this baby, even if the other babies get killed, this baby's got to be saved. So something, when the scriptures don't elaborate what it was, but Moses' dad and his mom saw something about this child. Now, Naturally speaking, what we, we just this is just normal family life. I mean, marriage and family produce children. That's the natural cause situation. And we have politics produce the policy. So that's the natural order of events. Those are the causes behind this particular situation. Now, what did they see? They were able to conceive of Jehovah God as being in control of the pregnancy, the conception, the pregnancy, and the political environment. How else, by faith, would they have been not afraid 
of the edict of the Pharaoh. I mean, this guy is the dictator of a totalitarian power, not just a totalitarian power, but Egypt was the superpower of the time. Real superpower. So here's this little helpless man and his wife, slaves to the state. They see this baby. They realize the natural way of thinking, but they realize something else. They realize that God exists and has a plan for history. So what they have done is they have taken the framework, and we'll just review that briefly. They have taken the framework. They've realized the story of the creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. They understand that God is God. Man has a different, made in the image of God, man to rule nature. They understand that evil started, evil and suffering. They understand that God is a God who judges and saves. He illustrated in the flood. They understand that God set up civilization after the flood with a covenant and contractual basis to history. But most of all, because as they go forward in history, they understand something else, that God called Abraham. Now, their Bible stopped. Not, they didn't know about the Exodus and Sinai. So their Bible stopped right there. That was the last chapter in their Bible. So they had five basic events. And they had all that doctrinal truth that they learned, passed on, father to son, father to son, taught by the priest, taught by Moses, taught by, through the family of Abraham. And they were taught that God had a purpose for Abraham. And what was that purpose? God promised a land, a seed, and be worldwide blessing. So they knew the Noahic covenant, they knew the Abrahamic covenant, and they just concluded that there was a future to the Jews. The elementary deduction here. If Abraham's promise was going to come true, could the Egyptian totalitarian policies eliminate the Jewish population? No, they couldn't. So they knew immediately that there was something that, that, that was illegitimate about Pharaoh's claim, that the government made this claim, and they said, well, we know that God is going to do something to the Jews, and apparently there was something about this baby that led them to believe that it's, this baby is going to be instrumental in all this. So that led them, in the last part of verse 23, to an act of what we today would call civil disobedience. There was a civil act of biblical civil disobedience. They did not fear the Pharaoh. He said they were supposed to do a certain thing. And they said, we're not going to do it. Sorry. And they did it by faith because they had grasped this frame of reference. And it gets back to the same situation in the drawing that we use all the time is when, when there's a situation developed, the trick is to encapsulate it within the doctrinal truths of the Word of God so that the controlling frame of reference for digesting and coping with that thing is God's mind as known through Scripture. We think God's thoughts after Him, and that's the battle. Ninety-five percent of the battle in the Christian life is not with other people. Ninety-five percent of the Christian life's battle comes out right here. It's in our thought patterns. So that's the struggle, and that's why as we work through this framework, it's not just some theory thing. Here was a case where the family had a very good discipline. It wasn't that they tried hard, they didn't like Pharaoh. It was by faith that they disobeyed Pharaoh. By faith. Because they were convinced of the Word of God, and they 
faith rested in his word. And if they had to disobey the government, hey, have to disobey the government, sorry. But that's what the word of God says. So they were led to do this. That's not saying now that every act of civil disobedience is blessed by God. It's just saying that in this situation, that extreme measure was legitimate. Now tonight, we want to go on to further uh, in the frame of reference because we've already gotten, finished the Old Testament tonight, and so we're going to start with our notes on the death of Jesus Christ. So, if you'll turn to page 73, which was the first part, I want to direct your attention to the quote by Dr. Leon Morris. He has an interesting quote here because he uh, he ever wrote a book, a very famous book, on the cross of Christ in, in Christian theology and beliefs. And uh, follow with me as I read this quote. It's a, it's a neat summary of things. The cross dominates the New Testament. Notice how naturally it is referred to as summing up the content of Christianity. We preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2. I delivered first unto you how that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Far be it from me to glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14 The gospel is the word of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 the enemies of Christianity are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Baptism is baptism into Christ's death, Romans 6.3. It is not without interest that while Christ did not enjoin his followers to commemorate his birth, or even in, even his, in his life, he did call them to remember his death. So, the point Morris is saying is that this sec, a third event, we dealt with the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ is very central. So we want to pay careful attention to this. And in the Q&A that we had a week or two ago, I remember one person was asking about blood sacrifice and animal sacrifice and so on. So I decided I would kind of change the notes a little bit from what I had in the original edition of this thing. And I want you to follow with me uh, down at the bottom of page 73, I'm going to kind of read through these notes because I want to make some points about them, if you'll follow with me. And then we'll, we'll go to some verses of Scripture. Um, the event of Christ's death. Why did the Messiah die? Did he have to? Or was it a tragic accident? Or does the death show that Christ really wasn't the Messiah, or that Jesus really wasn't the Messiah after all? You know why that, that's a legitimate question? What was it about the way Jesus died that would have raised this question in the minds of Jews? Think about how he died. He didn't die by an accident. He didn't die in battle. How did he die? He died as a criminal. He died through the mechanism of the government's execution. It was the manner of this that provoked... A, this is a controversial... We, we see the cross so often, we get so used to it, we don't think, can't place, it, place what it must have been like in the first century to people to whom it was something radically new. Here was the founder of a religion, this carpenter who was publicly executed 
for crimes against the state. And he's the founder of your religion? You've got to be kidding. An executed criminal is the founder of a religion. Now, that's what it means when carry the cross of Christ. It was, it was embarrassment in one sense. I mean, would you like to be identified uh, in the normal sense of the word? Somebody that, that screwed up so bad, they got arrested and, and executed for a crime, and you're going to be his follower? That's exactly the situation of every first century believer. So it's not to us, but that's only because you know, we're Monday morning quarterbacks here. Well, we judge the game after it's all over. But these guys are playing down in the field. And this is the way it appeared to them. Was his death meant to be merely inspirational? Or did it actually accomplish something before God concerning our salvation? These are questions the New Testament authors go to great lengths to answer. Their writings explain the event of Christ's death as the fulfillment of Old Testament revelation concerns God's holiness and man's sin. Now, this is an important sentence here because we're going to dwell on this. Remember each of these events, his birth and his life. Remember, if you think back last year when we covered these topics, I said, what was the problem with the birth of Christ? Why was that, did that stick in people's craw about the virgin birth? It was because people had a deformed and perverted view of God and man. Because they had a perverted view of God and man, they couldn't grasp what this virgin birth thing was all about. Then we got to the life of Christ. And it was a revelational thing. God, he, he revealed God. And people misstumbled all over that. Because, and New Testament scholars teaching on a university still stumble over that. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to just take a pause on Thursday nights, and we're going to go over the article that appeared last week in U.S. News and World Report. The title of the magazine on the newsstand was, Is the Bible True? And I want to show you, those of you who have faithfully come on Thursday nights, I want to show you how much you've really picked up here, because we're going to answer that article. And I want to take you through the process of engaging that sort of an assault on our faith and thinking it through, relaxed way, doesn't require a lot of muscle. We've already gone through most of the stuff that we need. We just have to learn how to take the tools and, and work the problem. But in this case, like those other two cases, there's some critical central truth that's screwed up, that's perverted. And in the case of the death of Christ, the, the crux of the whole discussion rotates around one basic issue. What does justice mean? Biblically speaking, what is justice all about? Because if we're not clear on this, we're going to perceive the execution of Jesus Christ in terms of the normal person of the street of the time. He was a criminal. Sorry, you know, he got what he deserved. They presuppose a view of justice. And you want to maybe underline the next phrase here. They presuppose a view of justice that originates in the holiness of God. It doesn't originate in the legislature of man. It originates in the holiness of God. A view of justice that today has almost totally disappeared from human consciousness. Absol almost to in a secularized society, this view of justice is totally obsolete. It's ridiculed, laughed at if it's ever even remembered. I bet you could go out on the street, take a survey, and you have to think about how to construct the survey, 
but you could go out and try to construct some sort of a quantitative measure and ask people for their views of justice. I will bet you, you could go to a thousand people and maybe three or four of them would come close to the biblical view, including lawyers and people that work in the judicial system. So we want to go through this, and, it's, and that's why I'm going to spend a lot of time in working through these passages of Scripture, because we want to get straight in our heads what justice is all about. Then we're going to understand the cross. We can't understand the cross if we don't understand justice. The cross has justice in mind. It is the most fantastic revelation of justice in the history of the universe. But woe to us to understand what's going on if we can't understand what justice is all about to start with. So, we want to look at the Old Testament idea of justice. Page 74 of your notes, you'll see that I entitled Old Testament Justice. Then if you flip over, uh, all the way over to page... Well, you haven't got the page yet, but... Um, the next part is going to be the application of the justice and the linkage between the justice and the Messiah. So, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to start and we won't get through it all tonight, but we're going to start with the Old Testament view of justice. Then, later, we're going to tie this in and link it, link to the Messiah and his relationship to justice. So, we're not going to get to the second part of that tonight. We're just going to deal with this right here the Old Testament view of justice. Now, we want to start um, by noticing something. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall occurred. And put ourselves in our imagination, our mind's eye, let's travel back to the garden and think of ourselves as observers to this process. Genesis 3. And turn, look down at verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What had to happen before God got the skin? He had to kill an animal. And he made, it's actually the Hebrew word skin or leather. He made leather, first leather jacket ever made, was made by God. So an animal had to die here. Had Adam and Eve ever seen death? No. They evidently were close to the animal kingdom because what do we know about Eve? An animal started talking to her, she huh, carried on conversation. So men and animals were pretty close. There's some residue of that in the animal kingdom today. This is why we have animals, we call them pets. People bond with their pets. My boy is a veterinarian, he bonded with his dog. He just had to put his dog down because he's got cancer. And it's a big emotional thing for him, even though he's a veterinarian. It's his dog. He bonded with his dog over many, many years. Went through all kinds of life experiences together. So this is trauma for him. But he'll be a good veterinarian because he understands how people bond with their pets. Helps them to understand when he's working on their pets. Well, animals and men 
will bond. And when Adam and Eve saw this horrible thing happen, maybe God showed it to them, maybe he didn't. But let's imagine that they had to stand there and watch God in a, in, incarnate, in a carnate form who walked in the garden. He had some sort of a body there. He grabs this animal, kills it. The blood comes out all over the place, big mess. Rips off the skin. Works with this piece of this animal carcass and hands it to him. Drip, drip. Now, this is a bloody mess here. Now, this is what the Bible's talking about. Now, you can't tell me that Adam and Eve, who were just created in a perfect environment, weren't slightly shocked by this thing that went on here. And if PETA was around, the pet, whatever it is, group, that animal rights group, I and mean, they'd freak out at this thing happening. Well, the, the whole point is that the animal, did the animal sin? You know, hey, how did the animal get involved in this thing? Now, let's just imagine us as observers to this event. We know God is loving. We know He's just. We're very thankful that He called to us after we sinned and asked us where we were because we were hiding. He had to initiate to us. That's grace. He had to call us to Himself. And we thought, you know, everything was cool. And then He turns around and He kills His animal. And we have to watch this bloody mess. We have to see an animal writhe in death. Not a pleasant scene. And then he hands us the tunic. And we have to wear it. And every time we wear it, every time we put the leather tunic on, what do we remember? Where it came from. So we have death on our mind every time we put our coat on. So this is the picture. Now let's turn to Genesis 4. And... Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. The two brothers, sons of Adam and Eve. Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel and his part also brought of the firstling of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and for his offerings he had no regard. So Cain became very angry. In the Bible categories, if we remember from creation narrative, there's a word for life. It equals nephesh. Plants do not have nephesh. Only animals have nephesh. And when God asks us to come into his presence, he asks us in the Old Testament to bring a sacrifice, a nephesh. And he's not going to accept anything else. And if we had time, we could go to Book of Jude, verse 11. And what is apostate religion called? The way of... You know what that means? The way of Cain? Bloodless religion. Now let's do a little cataloging in our minds here. Bloodless religion. What's bloodless religion? Any religion that seeks to come to God apart from an atoning blood sacrifice. Now this is controversial. You see... If, if our generation preached a clear gospel, which it doesn't, we wouldn't have people coming to Jesus because they don't feel good. And Jesus is going to make you whole psychologically. And Jesus is going to hold your hand. And Jesus is going to make you feel better. And Jesus is going to get your girlfriend back. And Jesus is going to make you wealthy. 
all 1,008 apostate reasons for accepting Jesus Christ. There's only one reason why we come to Jesus Christ. It's because of the blood atonement and the cross. That's the core of the gospel. Now, what this means is, is to the unbeliever, this is bloody religion. And that expression has been used forever. You never hear it today because there's not enough authentic gospel preaching to have an authentic reaction. But where the gospel has preached in its New Testament power, where the blood atonement and all the sacrifice and all this stuff goes on, people will be repulsed if, they don't, if the Holy Spirit doesn't open their hearts to what this whole thing is all about. People will be repulsed. How dare you talk about all this bloody religion? We want to talk about good works. We want to talk about the nice things of life. And you're bringing me all this blood stuff. Sorry. I didn't write this. That's what this book says. So let's follow it further. Let's go to Genesis 8.20. The days of the flood, all the earth was flooded. Human race was basically annihilated. And what we live in today, called planet Earth, if we had a time machine, go back into planet Earth as it looked like before the flood, and as planet Earth looks like now, we would probably think there's two different planets. They were probably that much different. So, chapter 8 of Genesis is the origin of what we call civilization don't have enough data to describe what the pre-antediluvian society looked like. Apparently pretty weird by our standards. But what we call civilization began here, not Africa. It began at Ararat. And this civilization was founded contractually on the basis of the Noahic Covenant. And what was the first act of worship at the beginning of civilization? A act of worship viewed and observed by the forerunners of every nation, culture, and people group. Every race, every people group, every linguistic subset of the human race is represented here in Noah and his family. And Noah built an altar. He took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Blood. Destruction. And, and a person who's first coming to the scriptures can be shocked by this. What the heck do the birds do when they sat in their cages? They accompanied this family all through the flood. And then the thanks they get is these human beings go kill them. You know, what's the deal here? Where's justice here? And the Lord smelled a smoothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground because of men. So here God is appeased. Now, what kind of God do you Christians have in the Bible that is appeased by this bloody mess? What kind of a God are you talking about? So you've got to feel this from the text and sense this. Because if you do, you're, lo you're locking into the truth. But if you think in terms of just nice, sterile, bloodless, good works, you're not getting it. Not getting it. All right, let's go on further. Somehow, we've got to deal with bloody religion, or, shall we say, blood, more properly, blood atonement for sin. 
And we want to think about this. Why is this a theme from the very first act of the fountainhead of, of our, the human race, the very first act of civilization, this emphasis on blood sacrifice? Well, it raises an issue. And the issue is going to be the issue of justice. Somehow, this blood atonement for sin satisfies God's justice. So let's look now, see if we can understand God's justice. The first truth about God's justice, the bottom of page 74 in your notes, I give you some verse references. We want to go to Numbers chapter 5. We're going to go to the Mosaic Law Code to see if we can get a sense of defining how the Bible approaches justice versus how we today approach justice. Numbers chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. This is the law code given by Moses, or given through Moses, by God to the nation Israel. Let's take some observations. Let's read Numbers 5, 5 through 10. I'm going to follow me through in these verses. And I want you to think as we read through these verses by verses, if you had to, if the next assignment were, okay, as a result of these verses, you tell me, what's the underlying idea about the source of justice in these verses? Numbers 5, verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel, when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if a man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, besides the ram of atonement, by which atonement is made for him." Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priest, shall be his. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, and so on. In verses 5 through 10, what is the sin? How is the sin addressed? Is it a sin? Who, to, against whom is the sin? It looks like it's against the person, the, crim, the victim of the crime, doesn't it? But it's introduced in verse 6. By what? Before we get to talking about the victim of the crime, who's been wronged before they got to the victim? The Lord. What does it say in verse 5? When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord. Okay? Just observe that. Just a feature. Just an observation. Now let's turn to Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. That's the, ver the book just prior to Numbers. Leviticus chapter 5. It's a little more clear here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, and so forth. 
He will make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing. Shall add to it a fifth part and give it to the priest. The priest shall make atonement for him. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, he is still guilty and shall bear his punishment. Again, in verse 19, it is a guilt offering. He was guilty before the Lord. Then continuing, the first few verses in chapter 6, the Lord said to Moses, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he sins in any one of so forth, so forth, so forth, so forth, and goes on and on, describes the specifics of the criminal code. What is the preface in all these passages. Before you get into the details of the, of the code, who is the sin against? Yahweh. Because who gave the code? When, when a person goes in a courtroom today, let's say, here's a victim, and somebody, the criminal has hurt this victim. How is the case presented in court? It's so-and-so against whom? The victim? Not presented that way in court. Am I right? It's presented against the state. Now, why is that? Why isn't it presented against the victim as the guy that got it? How come the victim is not the one that defines what the sin is? Answer. The law maker. If crime is a violation of a law, then the crime is against who made the law. If the law wasn't there, by definition, it's not a crime. Right? I mean, we think, well, it's wrong. Yes, it is. But from the standpoint of law, it isn't. It's a crime because this victim, there's a, there's a rule that the state makes, and that law has been transgressed. So it's a case of this criminal against the law not against the victim. Now, where did that idea get started from? Right here. What was the legislative arm in Israel? Three functions of government. Legislative, judicial, and executive, right? Who was the executive in, the, in, the, in Israel? Moses and the elders, leaders. Who were the judges? The elder councils that they had. Where was the legislature? Mount Sinai. So God was the legislative function. So now, in place of the state, what do we have in the Old Testament? Jehovah. God gave the law. Therefore, when there's a transgression, who is it against? It is against the lawgiver, the lawmaker. So that's why, in the Old Testament now, we have God as the source of law and the one who has sinned against. Now, for a very personal and practical application, let's turn to Psalm 51. David's famous sin. And this ought to act as our guideline when we confess our sins. David, Psalm 51, verse 4. So we're coming now to the first principle of Old Testament justice. In Old Testament justice, the sin is against 
God, not man. Because man didn't define it. It was against God. That's why in Psalm 51 there's this problematic verse. I mean, David, you'd say, for crying out loud, you know, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he knocked off her husband. I mean, we've got a little, you know, a little problem here. We've got adultery and we've got murder. But then when David confesses, what does he say? Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, that doesn't mean David's insensitive to the victim. But what he's saying is that when I think of my sin, I think of it vertically. I think of it in terms of the God who established right and wrong. So against thee and thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou speakest and blameless when you judge. It's a conviction born of a conscience sensitized to God. And what attribute of God is this? It's His holiness. Remember, He's love, He's justice, He's done all... You know, this is His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, the, that core of attributes. And it's because of God is who He is that He has this standard. Okay. Well, we've got to go to the second principle in Old Testament justice. And that is found in Exodus 22. So if you turn back into the law code, in Exodus 22, I want you to notice something there. Exodus 22. Now this, uh, this is a whole marvelous study, by the way, for a modern, modern people. I know going into these books is about as thrilling to some people as reading the obituaries. But the point is that these passages in the Mosaic Law Code really do have a lot of depth to them and meaning. And um, it's too bad we're just not taught this. Particularly is it too bad we're not taught this in school. Because the Mosaic Law Code is the fountain of Western law. I mean, it's so funny. We're so worried about the Ten Commandments being in place. Where do you think is the basis of the British common law? Where do you suppose that came from? Came, oh, well, it came out of Rome, the secularist. It's the contribution of Christianity and Western civilization that codified a lot of these laws. But if you look at the law, here's some specific casuistic sections in the law code of ancient Israel. Now watch how they dealt with crime. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox, four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he sold is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or donkey, he shall pay double. If a man lets a field or vineyard be grazed over and let his animal loose, so and so, he shall make restitution. Verse 6, if a fire breaks out, so it is stagnant grain, blah, 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 he shall make restitution. What is the key word that you see repeated here over and over, verse after verse? Restitution. So somehow, this concept is wed to the idea of justice in the scripture. Restitution. Restitution means trying to restore the damage done 
to the godly order. God has created a certain order. Crime violates that order. And that order has to be healed and repaired. The justice that you observe in this Mosaic Law Code goes to great lengths to repair damage at exactly the point where the damage was done. You see, we're far from that in our society. In our society, we'll throw somebody in jail, but this doesn't really help the victim. And what it does is graduate course in crime. Because when they get out, they, now they get their PhD, and I can do it better next time. But in the Old Testament, they had, they had other ways of handling violent crime, by the way, in the Old Testament. They handled it real well. They had public executions. But the idea we're trying to get across here is there's a restitutionary component to justice. So let's put these two ideas together and see what we come up with now. Point three. Law of the Old Testament says that sin or injustice is against God. That means God is the standard of justice. It's his nature that is the standard of justice. Men's law may reflect that standard or may not. Secondly, God isn't satisfied with leaving things, leaving debris around. He wants the situation repaired. That is why when God allows history to go on, as we've said, and we've shown this slide over and over, the evil slide. Why do we say that God is not going to let history go on forever, but that he is going to separate good and evil? He is going to restore at least the goodness. For the creature who refuses to deal with the original issue, and what was the original issue we just said? It is sin against God, isn't it? So the creature who is never willing to go back to the source of the problem, which is my rebellion against God, and deal with that issue, then he becomes debris. Eternal garbage. But for those creatures called by grace who respond to God's call, good, rest restoration. God restores things. The problem, however, is that when we get to this point of justice, sin against God, restitution, we put these two things together, and now what we conclude is, conclusion, that justice demands restitution for the ruined life. Adam and Eve, when they sin, they die. Now, if God is going to restore it, that life that is lost has to be restored. That's restitution. But the problem is, point four, that the source of the restitution can no longer be the person who's lost his life. He doesn't have a life to give. These criminals in, in chapter 22 of Exodus, the guy who's the thief, he has to go out and work and pay it back. He has to pay back the damages. That's why there's five oxen instead of one. Why is it compounded? Because the guy lost his oxen to start with. Then he lost the productivity of the oxen. And he lost a lot of other things. And what they're doing is they're just compounding the damages. And that has to be restored. The problem is we are sinners. We have lost our life through sin. And our life is not ours, by the way. Whose is it? 
God's. He was the one who gave it to us. So here we are. We're damaged. Our life has been lost. It's his life that we've screwed up. And he wants some restitution. Excuse me. You know? Hey, pay up. Well, how do I pay up? And that's the, that's the origin of the religion of Cain or the religion of Abel. The conclusion here is that the restitution must have an external source. Now, this is the heart of what's coming up when the blood atonement. You've got to get this background right. It's God's holiness that demands restitution. The restitution has to come from a source somewhere. It can't come from us because we've lost it. So it has to come from a source external to us. This was the lesson that God was teaching Adam and Eve in the garden. You say, how so? How so was, and here we get into animal sacrifice. Why do we have bloody mess in the Old Testament? Okay, animals are nephesh. That is, they are life. That's the Hebrew word, equals life. Man has nephesh. What's the difference between nephesh animal and nephesh man? The Bible gives a distinction. Nephesh man is made in God's image. So our life is qualitatively different from the animals. But that is not to say that the animals don't have analogous souls to ours. It's not made in God's image. I mean, your dog doesn't have devotions in the morning. But... The dog or cat or pet or whatever, iguana, whatever you have, is a, is a form of life. It's a form of nephesh. And it's close enough to us, instead of your flower pot, the nephesh in the animal is close enough that we can partially bond with it. And we can understand something. This is why people have pets. There's an attraction there. What's the attraction? Because there's an analog nephesh going on. We can bond with that a little bit. So the animals are nephesh, which means now they are models of human life. And we just quote that. Not complete, not made in God's image, but they're close enough. They're closer than daisies and tulips to human life. So therefore, God picks out animals to be the revelatory objects to teach us something. Now we turn to Genesis 9. And we go back and cover a point about the beginning of our civilization in animals. Originally in the garden, man was a vegetarian. In Genesis 9, we are authorized meat in the diet. To us who don't live on farms, and we live in the city, the bloodiness of animal slaughter is not an immediate experience. It's all neatly packaged in the supermarket shelf. So most of us go all through life and we never encounter the violence and the death of getting meat to eat. But in Genesis 9, there was a little ceremony that was had to be done. So if you hunted an animal there had to be almost like a ceremony done, done about it. It says, verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. 
I give it all to you as I gave the green plant. Only, there's a restriction now, only you will not eat the flesh with its blood. And surely I recall the lifeblood from every beast and so on. What does that mean? It means the blood has to be drained from the carcass before eating can occur. Now why do you suppose that is? Well, later on in the Levitical law code, there's a word that says the life is in the blood. The nephesh is identified with the blood. And this little act of draining the blood out of the carcass is a pause that, number one, the only reason why I get that right is God gave it to me. I've killed a creature of God and there was a price. This creature is valuable. And to, as almost like an emblem of the fact that I owe God something for this, I pay him back by draining the blood in the ground. This animal was valuable in God's sight. And it's lost its life because of me. And so all of our civilization, when it shifted from a vegetarian diet to a, to a meat-eating diet, to, to meat in the diet, what that communicates to us, if we think biblically, is that we physically exist only because of substitutionary death. Think about it. We're sitting here tonight surviving on the basis of substitutionary death for us. Nefesh has been spilled for us into the ground in order that we can breathe tonight and we can, can eat and we can eat and live. But this came down in the Old Testament to the fact that animals would be killed not just for meat, but they would be killed for sin. Now a new lesson is that. And by the way, while we're at this point in verse 4, you will not eat the flesh with the blood. Can you think of a New Testament reversal of that truth taught by Jesus? You shall eat my flesh and you will eat my blood. Because in Jesus, the life is completely given to us. And this is kind of a restraint in verse 4. In one sense, it's teaching the value of the animal that lost its life, but it's also teaching a restriction. We do not have the right to total life of those animals. They are God's gifts, and we can partake of some of it. But he says part of that is mine. And I'm just giving you a little bit of this. When my son comes, I'll give you all of it but not the animals. To show you that the Old Testament saints were sensitive and had a problem with this bonding with the animals, and yet they had to kill and slice their necks, their throats, and, and bleed them. Turn to the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. See, all this is background to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why all these details are here. The cross has to be explained in context. It's always the context that counts. In, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, David comes to, uh, Nathan comes to David and tells him the story. Two men were in the city, one rich and the other poor. Rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. What's that animal, that little ewe, doing? It's bonding with that family. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare the way for it come, but he rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and we know the rest of the story. The point I'm making about the story is that the Old Testament people were very sensitive to the fact that they cared for their animals. The slaughterhouse religion did not breed in them a callousness toward animal life. It bred instead a sensitivity because there's something abnormal about this. Remember, again, we go back to this. There's something abnormal about the fallen universe. This good-evil mix, is our deepest parts of our soul tells us this is kind of abnormal. Animal death is abnormal. We sense that it's abnormal, and that's why when the animal bonds with us, we don't want to give it up. There's something enduring about that. It, it tugs at our soul. So that's normal. I mean, that's, it's abnormal, but it's, it's, a, it's a way of the Old Testament has of looking at this to prove that in the Old Testament, this was a poignant moment. They didn't slaughter animals because they liked to see blood. They didn't slaughter animals because they liked the noise. It didn't give them, in the, in, you know, Peter has this idea that, that in the Old Testament that, uh, well, I mean, these people didn't care. I mean, this is how they, they were testosterone rich here. I mean, ooh, ah, kind of thing. That's why they did all this. No. You want a testosterone man? What do you call 2 Samuel 12? This guy had so much testosterone, he committed adultery with a guy's wife. So here's, here's a guy who is a man's man. And he has this sensitivity to animals. Why? Because he's made in God's image, and the animals have nefesh. And a bonding can occur. And so, therefore, the animal becomes a revelatory source to solve this problem about justice. God is saying, it's going to be, I'm going to give it to you, I'm going to give it to you, but it's going to cost. And I want you to feel the pain. So, animal after animal after animal has got to lose his life, lose his life, lose his life, and you've got to sit there and watch it, and watch it, and watch it, and watch it, until it clicks up here. That your sin, one day, will be resolved but only because somebody external to you pays for what you've done. So this is why we won't have time tonight because we've run out of time, but please look on the uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16, or, or 9 through 14, basically that whole passage, Hebrews 9. Read that because there's where the great uh, truth is made that all of the blood, all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were not efficacious. Well, then what function did they do? They didn't take away sin. They prepared men through three-dimensional modeling of what atonement was going to be like. They prepared us for the cross of Christ. Father, we thank you that you have been faithful through the centuries to consistently provide the same set of instructions to your people that you will not tolerate people entering your presence who have not made restitution for what we have ruined, and that our ruinous wake, the consequence of our sin, is so obnoxious, it is so total, that we are bankrupt to repair it or bring it to any kind of restored order. And therefore, we must understand that we have to rely on something external to us, and we thank you that you have prepared the entire creation to mirror the person of Christ, that every animal, every nephesh, 
is an adumbration of the cross of Jesus Christ. May you enlarge our hearts to give us a deeper appreciation for our Savior's work. In His name, Amen. I want to get everybody out before the hour ends. Um, so tonight we started into the to the third event in Christ's life, the death of Christ, and we're going to uh, work our way through the Old Testament background. Hopefully, we started tonight giving a little context. What's so we won't just take the you know, cross as just nice religious language. Um, it has this rich background, and it's rooted into the very structure of creation itself. Um, anybody uh, like to raise questions or go back to what missing points or anything else we'd like to cover here? Debbie, we need you. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I'd prefer it kept to tonight, but if we can't get anything, I. The issue of what? Wrath, God's wrath. Yes. How, how does that work into being able to exercise his wrath prior to creation? Because the wrath is a subset of his holiness. It's not essential. Okay. His holiness was always there. And I think you get a glimpse of his holiness, his abiding holiness, by the fact that every report we have in scripture where people have seen God or seen the throne it's uh, it's shocking I mean it's like high voltage and uh, the seraphim in Isaiah 6 who stand in God's presence all the time hide their faces I mean come on they're sinless beings Uh, so there's this this radiant holiness from God's throne and it's so great that this is why um, there's this search in the book of Revelation among the creatures. Oh, uh, the Lamb has come. Oh, the Lamb is here. Because it resolves this, this almost unapproachableness of the Father with all of His holiness. The, um, Probably, it's, it's the wrath of God is like the grace of God. Grace is this kind of a subset or working out of his love. Like when we get done here with this blood atonement, you know, the, the great verse of Scripture, everybody knows, John 3.16, uh, God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son. And that can become so trivialized because we repeat it so often. But when you think that after centuries of having these Old Testament saints sit there and have to kill these animals, 
You know, what, what must have been going through their minds? First of all, besides the animals were costly. I mean, these sacrifices weren't cheap here. You, can, you know, you know how much meat costs in the, in the grocery store. Well, you can imagine how much it was to bring your four-legged living creature in there and have this priest kill it with you there, watching it all. And then watching them do this a thousand times. I mean, it was a stinking bloody mess. The worship of the Old Testament was not some, some beautiful appearing cathedral thing. It was a really kind of an ugly mess. And um, so, so for God to so, have, have, over centuries of time, made men uh, sort of repulsed. I mean, there must have been a repulsion. Of, of seeing this have to why do we have to do this oh, and, and then the reflection uh, you would think as the Holy Spirit deepened their heart you know is my sin really this bad that it takes this to cure it I mean what is the deal here and all those questions had to go through their minds they had to struggle with this and that's God's in three dimensions you know uh, he, he put them through a living drama of these blood sacrifices over and over and over again. Hopefully, so that he prepared the nation so that when the Messiah was going to do the cross work for us and actually do the work and not just reveal pieces of it, um, it they, they get it. <laughs> and, you know, when Jesus started his career, remember the one guy, the prophet that introduced him? What did he call Jesus? The animal or the Lamb of God. See, John the Baptist, he, he saw what was happening. He, he had an idea what was going to go on because he, he, would have, he wouldn't have called him Lamb of God. He wasn't talking about lambs like we see, you know, those cuddly little things that people hold. He meant Lamb of God in the sense that the, this guy is, is our sacrifice. He's going to die. And he's going to be the lamb that's going to do what these other lambs have never been able to do. But it's going to be a bloody mess. And so then when we say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the sense of what, what God did for us is felt by somewhat by putting ourselves in the position of 2 Samuel 12 of having this, this poor man with this little pet lamb. Uh, I remember my son, veterinarian, one of the heartache things he had one day, he was in the clinic and this old man came in, and he lived alone. His wife had died. He was just a widow, widower. And uh, he, he, his rabbit, he had his pet rabbit. And this rabbit was sick, had cancer and all kinds of problems. And Eric tried to heal it, and he, he had to put it down. I mean, sorry. I mean, this animal's dying here. Um, you can, you know, I can squirt it full of chemo, and it'll last for two or three more days, but that's all. And this guy just breaks out in this horrendous weeping, and telling Eric about how he sits every night in television, sitting here with his pet rabbit, and it meant that much to him. And, you know, it's, now it's gone. It's gone. Boom. And that wrenching like this, that wrenching from death, that's the feeling that God took pains in the Old Testament to reveal so that when we say, He so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, we have some idea of what it means. It's not a religious slogan. God gave His only begotten Son, and He went through that wrenching. And however this can be, that the self-sufficient, um, omnipotent God can in some way experience this grievous loss of His Son. 
In fact, the very term, the only begotten Son, you know where that comes up in the scripture historically? Where that term gets started, the only begotten Son, is with Abraham and Isaac. And you remember that story. I mean, here's a guy that has to slit his own son's throat. Where's the sacrifice? Well, God's going to provide it. You know, but hurry up. And so he gets to this point, and here's this son that he and his wife have waited for for years, who's a miraculous, and then God tells him, kill him, sacrifice. And then, when God directs Abraham to finally take that knife up, bind Isaac, he says, take your only begotten son. That's where the term starts. So now, what I'm trying to show you is these terms in the New Testament that we meet with and just, you know, we just kind of go on. They're loaded. If you take time to pause and digest the preparation of the centuries of the Old Testament revelation so that when those terms are used, the only begotten Son, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that He intends for us to comprehend more about what that simple verse means all the impact of it. And that's what this stuff is all about. People miss the point in time. They say, what's all these stories about in the Old Testament? You've got to go back to the frame of reference. The frame of reference tells you what the stories are about. They're all linked together. There's a reason for every single one of them. Probably not, but I don't, don't conclude. that text about the exact chronology because sometimes the Bible is topical it's like a news story it'll read this and then it repeats the cycle but be careful George in concluding that because they were cousins they necessarily lived close together there's several hints in the scripture that that probably wasn't true okay. um, 
number one, uh, at least as they grew older, um, John was, uh, t was an ascetic, and Jesus wasn't. Jesus was very sociable. And there's a later uh, kind of a quippy narrative after, uh, in halfway through Jesus' ministry when he comments on John. And um, the people are complaining about John. The people are complaining about Jesus, you know. People always have to complain. We all, we're all complainers by nature. And, you know, we've got to fuss at this pastor and fuss at that pastor, and this guy doesn't do this, and this guy doesn't do that. And so Jesus, hey, you know, you're complaining about John because he's an ascetic. He doesn't go to your parties. You don't like him because he doesn't go to your parties. I go to your parties, and now you're fussing at me because I go to the parties. What's the matter with you people? You got a problem? And, and that little dialogue, if you follow the dialogue, it's like Jesus and John knew each other, were related, but I don't see them as bosom buddies. John was a prophet. And frankly speaking, we don't know, and, and uh, scholars that have spent all their lives exegeting prophetic portions of Scripture, the Psalms, there are Psalms written that we don't understand. How did David write this? Oh, that's Psalm 2 that we're going, the Son of God Psalm, yeah. I mean, how did, what, was, what was the process that these men used to write Scripture? I mean, did they see visions? How did John know that he was the Lamb of God? I mean, was it because he sat down and thought it through and, and reasoned it out, like, you know, coley? Or was, did it come to him? Uh, he knew Jesus. He probably heard of the stories of his virgin birth, so he, Jesus was special. But you see, we have to be careful because we're reading after the fact. The ball game's over, and we're critiquing the coach's views. And we weren't playing then. So that's why it behooves us when we read particularly the Gospels that we transport ourselves back in time and pretend for the moment that we're reading those pages that we don't know the rest of the New Testament, that we don't know about the Ascension, that we don't know even about the Crucifixion. All we know is we have these fragmented pieces of prophecy in our Old Testament. We know those. We know God has a plan for this, this man Jesus. He had a peculiar birth. But his peculiar birth didn't necessarily prove his deity. It just proved that, that he was somebody special. So I would imagine that in his generation, it was particularly difficult. Uh, it wasn't an easy process to perceive who Jesus really was. And the, if you want to watch that, if we all had the time, which we all don't, but if we read all four Gospels and we wrote down what characterizes the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then read the fourth Gospel, you'd see a distinct difference between how those Gospels are written, the three over here and the one over here. 
In fact, the college professors like to say, oh, see this different conflicting traditions in the church. No, it wasn't conflicting traditions of the church. It was just that Jesus had so many facets to his personality, it took four people to perceive it all. But John, when he starts his gospel, he says, what does he say of Jesus? He says, we perceived in him the Shekinah glory. The, the word God dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. But when you read John's Gospel, there's not one report of the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, there's not a report of the of, of, uh, particularly spectacular manifestations of his glory. Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of the Mount of Transfiguration experience that so impressed the synoptic writers. John's approach, rather, is he saw the glory every day. The other guys were saw the glory when it was physically obvious. But John knew Jesus so well that he was so close to Jesus. Now, not John the Baptist now, John the Apostle. Uh, that he saw the glory of God all the time in Jesus. And he, he gives you these little... little th he, the way he handles that, that wedding feast. I mean, he's intimate to what went on in the back room. You can tell... And, and, he, and who, who told John uh, to, about what Nicodemus said? You know? Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He didn't come to John and Jesus by night. So you can tell Jesus shared a lot with, with John. And so much so that, as I said back two years ago or a year ago, uh, when they had the drama here, I said, if you read John chapter 3, I challenge anyone in this room to tell me where in that verse Jesus stops talking, and John, the writer, starts. Good mental exercise. Go read John 3 someday. Starts out Jesus talking, Jesus talking, Jesus talking. Ends up commentary by the Apostle John. Tell me where it transitioned. It is, it's amazing. You can't tell where it transitioned. So, therefore, false professors have said, see, that shows you that John was putting... John, it was a Johannine version of Jesus... And the synoptics, they had a different ver different Jesuses, you know, four Jesuses, four Gospels. Well, the issue is that John was the youngest. Remember, he was the last apostle to die. So John was a teenager, probably, when this was going on. Now, this is just a theory, but I think it's interesting. Uh, a well-known Greek professor who has studied the New Testament text very carefully has mentioned this. It's his... Just his theory, just his suggestion, that because John was a teenager and so young, teenagers we want models, and oftentimes you know you, you see the kids out here with this boom, 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 boom and stuff, uh, rap music and all the rest. It, I mean, we have a school teacher in our congregation. He was saying, if you have one cut-up kid in the teenage class, all the rest of them will mimic him. You know, it's the it's weak following the strong or something. But, and it's just a way of domination and mimicking. Well, John apparently picked up the way of saying things from Jesus. So John not only was close to Jesus, but when he went to teach, that simple, straightforward teaching is probably much closer to the way the real Jesus taught than the synoptic reports. The synoptic reports quote Jesus, but we have to be careful. They may be quoting him like the newspaper quotes somebody saying, the mayor said today that blah, 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 and it's often an indirect quotation. And unfortunately, in the Greek, you can't tell a direct quotation from an indirect quotation. 
And just so, you know, if you forgot your, if you forgot your English grammar, a direct quotation is, John said, quote, I am going to the store, end quote. Indirect quotation is, John said that I am going to the store. He said that he was going to the store. That's an indirect quote. Well, it's hard in the Greek because there's no quotation marks. So the issue that this man raised is probably the way Jesus spoke was the way John writes, which is kind of interesting. This is all the human sides of this thing. So the thing we want to understand, summary, is as we look at Jesus walking to his death, um, we want to realize that it was all in, in the mind of God from eternity that this Messiah had to be the external source of our so great salvation. And all the other religions of the world, you go to Muslims, you can go to the Hindus, you can go to the Confucianists, Taoism, Buddhism, you can go to the cults, and you centralize and ask this essential question, how do we deal with our sin? No answer. Be good. Uh, that wasn't my question. My question wasn't be good. My question was, how do I deal with my sin? Well, I can't deal with it because I haven't defined it properly. What do we just do tonight? Sin is what? Sin is violation of God's holiness. Okay? So, because they have a sloppy definition of sin, they have a sloppy definition of salvation. And that's what's distinguished cults from genuine Orthodox Christianity. I mean, we may have our differences in the Christian camp between the Reformed people and the Wesleyan tradition and this and that. But I'll tell you one thing we agree on. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died for sins, and he had to, and there is no way to approach God apart from Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not trying to be a, a, you know, a nasty person. He's simply saying two plus two is four. I, you can't come to God except through the cross. All right, um, next week we'll continue. Um, the notes will tie this with a Messiah. If you do get a chance to read the 4th of October issue of U.S. News Report, the one that says, is the Bible true, all plastered all over the cover, uh, read it, because in three weeks from now, I want, to, I want to spend the evening, we'll just go through that, pretending that somebody has said that to you, and they dropped that bomb in your lap, and now you've got to answer. So how would you do that? I'm not going to tell you exactly, I mean, because you, you have your own styles of responding to that, but I hope to at least show you how you can use the framework in that practical situation. Okay?